Welcome to, to Valley Hope this morning. It's good to see all of you. Um, I wanted to make uh, folks aware of, especially members of our church, um, a couple weeks ago now, our session um, voted to, to change uh, Jeremiah Swan's job description and clarify what he does. And many of you don't know Jeremiah at all. He's just that guy over there at the computer. Jeremiah at the computer, can you please raise your hand? There he is. You at least saw a hand. Um, uh, there are things that happen, including this stuff back here, that you probably walk in and never think about. Um, and oftentimes, Jeremiah is behind them. Before, we called his job the church life director. And that gave people the impression that he was the person in charge of the liveliness of our church, which that is not true. Um, and if you know Jeremiah, that would be a bad job for him, as it would be for me. It's not a crack on him. Um, to be more clear for everybody about what he does, um, he, we're calling him the director of operations for our church. Um, our church is full of busy people doing lots of things uh, for themselves, for their family, and for our church. And a lot of times, uh, they're just everybody's running in their own lane and not talking to one another. So basically, Jeremiah's job is to help make sure everybody's talking to one another and that we're moving together uh, forward uh, strategically, not redoing things that somebody else is doing or scheduling things when somebody else has already scheduled things. He's helping us communicate with one another. Part of what he also does is make this stuff happen on Sundays. And what we like is for him to not be the guy behind the computer every week. Um, he does a lot for us, and we don't want him to have to do that every week. So he, he's going to do a lot of things, does a lot of things for us. But if you could help us, um, we would like to see more people do stuff like that so that Jeremiah can be doing stuff that he's even better at because he can push a button really well. It's very good. Um, but he can also do other things. So I don't even know what's behind me right now. Okay, he changed it. Good. Um, so if you're interested in doing that, could you talk to him? And uh, also, basically, if anything needs to be communicated in our church, it's probably going to have to funnel through him at some point. So if you have questions about anything like that, please go talk to him. Um, he's got wonderful gifts in that area, uh, administratively, organizationally. We've used him. I've leaned on him for years, and our goal is to do that more effectively together. So if you have questions about that, go talk to Jeremiah or, or me or any of the elders, and we can, can talk about that. Um, I uh, just got back in town last night. Um, I was, I, we just spent, my family spent the night, Friday night, down in Georgia with my dad, who was turning 60 years old. Um, and my sister, my and my sisters made dinner for him with our families and everything. It was, uh, it was great. Uh, part of what happened for my dad is that we, he didn't want a big party or anything like that. But we gave him letters from a bunch of people in his life about their impact on him. And uh, I wrote a letter, and of course it was three pages long because I talk for a living and it just happens. Um, but it is cool because I, I got to listen to some. As my, my dad is a Chick-fil-A operator in Atlanta, and he's been doing Chick-fil-A for a long time before anybody really even knew about Chick-fil-A outside of Atlanta. And uh, he's influenced a lot of people's lives. And... 
I realize, you know, I, I get to be in a room every week pretty much and talk to people. And it's really tempting to think, you're kind of a big deal. Um, me. Um, not you. And as I listen to my dad, who never has a room like that, and hear people say, there are people all over the country that I've been profoundly impacted you for Jesus, not just for business, because of what you've done. It was incredibly humbling. And um, I, I just want to encourage you. I, oftentimes, the things that you get to do in your life are unseen. You're, you're laboring in quiet. You may be a faithful business person, farmer, friend, student, and you may feel like nobody ever sees, but there, there are effects to your life that, that you may or may not have the privilege of knowing, and it is in those secret and quiet places that God often chooses to work most significantly. So I don't know if you're here today and feeling discouraged about doing the right thing again and again and again and no one knowing. Someone knows and someone sees, and it matters and it counts. Um, so keep on going. And hopefully, hopefully I'll be able to grow up and be like my dad one day. Uh, I kind of doubt it. But uh, hopefully you and I together can, can stumble forward in doing the secret work of working with God. Um, that's not related to anything. That was just free content. Um, I'm going to charge you for this, though. Um, we are starting a series on the book of Revelation so we are in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Or if not, obviously, you know, there. I'm going to read the first eight verses of this book and then pray. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending the angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who, uh, who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray, God, in the hearing and the obedience to these words that we would receive that blessing as promised. We pray that our ears would be opened, that our hearts would be soft, that our feet would move in accord with the words of your scripture, and that our, our eyes would be open to see this revelation of Jesus to the praise of his name. Amen.
Um, I don't know how familiar you are with this book of the Bible. Um, If you've been in the church for a while, you've probably read stuff from the book of Revelation. Or you've avoided the book of Revelation, but you kind of know it exists, and it's there, and roughly what it has to do with. Um, I, I have been scared to preach through this book, but for the past year plus, have kept feeling drawn back to it for one reason or another. And ultimately, uh, when something like that happens... Uh, I have to just trust, okay, because this is something that I feel like I should do and don't really want to do, I should probably trust that it's God calling me to do that thing. Um, The book of Revelation is weird. It is just weird. And it is weird in its own content, but it's profoundly weird if you look at it in the context of church history because people do weird stuff with it. Very, very, very weird stuff. Uh, people that I would consider to be brilliant uh, and insightful get to the book of Revelation at times and just do wacky, wacky stuff. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, Jonathan Edwards, one of the most famous American theologians, the worst thing about him, which is terrible, is that he owns slaves, which is horrific and sinful and unjustifiable. If you can set that to a to side, a lot of the other things that he said are brilliant. Um, and I don't know how those two things happened, but those are the facts. And then if you look at what he does with the book of Revelation, he just, it's kooky. He spends pages and pages like diagramming who is this beast and who is that beast and when is this and when is that. And it's like, Johnny, bro, chill out on all of this stuff. And this is often what happens. People will come to the book of Revelation. It's full of imagery. It's full of these things that are clearly symbolic. And people will say, well, i got to diagram every one of these symbols. And i got to make a big chart. i got to make a big map and a timeline. And we got to figure this whole thing out. And because of that, I don't want to be one of those people. I, I, I look at that stuff and I'm just like, this doesn't feel right. This just seems so weird. I don't want to be one of those guys. Um, you know, I, I grew up as a, as a child in evangelicalism when Left Behind was like exploding onto the scene. And I actually grew up and thought, this is the only way to understand Revelation. This is, they're basically doing it right, bar details or little things that they might get wrong. And it, it scared me, it terrified me, these novels slash works of quasi-theology. I didn't even realize that the way that they were doing, the things that they were doing in the book of Revelation was you know, relatively new and very American. And you know, if you jump back in time and go to a different place in, in church history, what they're doing is totally foreign. There are different ways to look at the book of Revelation. I just want to kind of point out to you where we're going with this. Um, Historically speaking, people have opened this book and said, "These, these are symbols, and they are describing the history of the church generally. That's one way, basically, to describe this approach. There's another approach, that the kind of left behind sort of approach. This book is about the, the very end of the world. It is about the far future from the perspective of the writer. 
And I am living in the, in near, much nearer to that future. So I'm going to look at my past and the very close future and diagram how all of this stuff works. And broadly speaking, there's another way of looking at this, that when John writes in the book of Revelation, these things are going to happen very soon, that he meant it. And he meant in the first century when he wrote, these things are about to happen, that these things were about to happen. And that when the people who originally received the revelation given by John, they actually understood most of the thing. They didn't read it and say, well, this is weird. We better put it in a can and bury it in the ground for 2,000 years until somebody figures this out. They, they opened it. They read it. They understood the message, by and large. Now, I'm in that third camp. When I hear those words where John is saying, these things are about to happen, he was referring to things largely that were about to happen, things that really happened in history and then there's, of course, parts that are still not happened yet. When John writes about big white throne judgments and the end of history, I don't think we've reached the end of history. Those clearly are things that we are still waiting for. But by and large, we need to listen to what John is writing in this very unique, very graphic, very emotional style. Attend to what he's saying and to see the thing that John wants us to see, what ultimately what this passage says, what Jesus wants his church to see. So that is how we will go about this. We'll be in this book until Easter, uh, until Easter Sunday. We'll spend a good amount of time here. I am getting tons of help on this. I am not sitting alone in a room with my Bible trying to figure out what all of this means. I would be a fool to do that, and so would you. So I, I have a huge long list of sources that are helping me, and if you would like to know what those sources are, I'd be happy to give them to you. I make no claims to being ingenious or unique or giving you fresh and new content. Just fire me if I ever say that I do, okay? That's not my job. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the thing that must soon take place. This title in this first line is functioning as the title of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, your, your translation, depending on how you're reading it, might say the revelation from Jesus Christ because the way that Greek works, it's a conversation. Is it of or is it from? But that thing, the apocalypse of Jesus, that's the word that he's using. This is uh, a kind of, of telling of truth called apocalyptic literature. It is full of these intense imagery, this, this uh, messengers from the divine, these heavy usages of numbers as symbolism to tell you greater things. But ultimately, what it is, is revelation. And it is not revelations, plural. It is one revelation. The, book of, the whole book is trying to tell you and me one thing. And right from the beginning, it is a revelation that is from Jesus, John is saying that Jesus is himself the faithful witness to this revelation, and ultimately it is a revelation of Jesus. 
The very heart of the book of Revelation is not a chart or a pathway to figure out what events we need to tick off before the end of time. Ultimately, the book of Revelation is trying to get the original readers, it's trying to get you and I to see one thing, and it is Jesus Christ. The whole book is written to a people who are on the verge of real suffering. It is the early church that is about to and has already seen the blood of their fellow worshipers run. And those people who are about to suffer, who are suffering, are called to see that the real truth that appears to be hidden from the whole world is actually that the one who seems to be defeated is the victorious king of the whole world. And actually, in their sufferings, God is displaying not His defeat, but His incredible victory. That is what this book is about. You are invited to come see this morning the resurrected, the risen and ascended King above all kings, who surely will watch over you, who will watch over me. John um, will do this thing that he does using tons of allusions to the Old Testament. One commentator said, it is the most illusory part of the New Testament. You will find more pointings and quotations of the Old Testament in this book than any other book in the New Testament. And you have to pay really close attention to why and what he's doing when he's doing that because he's filling in all of this backstory behind just a few words to get our hearts to lay a hold of all that God is doing in all of history. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and is to come. It's crucial to understand that the Israelite conception and understanding of God has been summed up in His name. God tells him, tells Israel His name by putting Himself as the end and be-all of all being. He says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I've always been who I've always been. Peter Lightheart says, it's tempting to see God as just outside time and somehow putting a foot in the, the beginning and the end and the middle and that we're traveling along this timeline and we will bump into God at every stage. But he says that doesn't capture the fullness of what God is telling with his people. He is the God who is forever and perpetually rushing forward towards us. He's not catching us from behind. He is the God who is already in the future, but is also rushing forward into the present. He is the God who comes to his people. It is true in the incarnation of Jesus and it is true in the coming of Jesus to His people in the book of Revelation. This is God in Himself being consistent, rushing forward towards us in history to scoop us close to Himself. He is the God who claims these three names for Himself, who was, who is, and is to come. And He, get, he describes Jesus with these three titles. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. These are three titles. Firstborn, faithful witness, firstborn ruler of kings. And then it gives us three things that Jesus does along with those three titles. He loves us, freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom of priests. And the three titles go together with the three works. Jesus is this triple named one. Jesus is first the faithful witness. A major theme in the book of Revelation is going to be that God calls his people to faithfully be a witness in the world. And a specific kind of witness is going to be of special concern to John in the book of Revelation. It is the witness of the martyrs. We're not talking about the kind of comfortable witnessing that we think of in our cultural and historical context. We're not talking about saying, you know, have a blessed day instead of a good day and being nice to people and saying that's what witnessing is. We're talking about the witness of the early church that costs you your life, that results in wounds and scarring and imprisonment. It is that kind of witness. And John is saying the witness of all witnesses is actually Jesus. He is the martyr-in-chief who has faithfully witnessed to the nature and character of God. And we are called to follow in His footsteps. And we should take great comfort because as this first martyr... He has loved us. He loves us. So when you suffer, church, when you act as a faithful witness, you are not alone. But you are in the care of himself, the first and greatest witness. He didn't love you past tense. He loves you in an ongoing sense and continues to care for you. He is the firstborn from the dead. This description is used elsewhere of Jesus. <coughs> He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is the one who has now shifted the timeline and story of history and has made death not the end of his people's story, but merely a beginning. He has put his foot on the grave and has broken the back of the power of the grave so that his people know that where they are going is to follow him. Reading uh, church fathers from our distant past, they will focus on how we have been united to his body. And so because of his resurrection body, we follow where his body has gone. Because of He is the firstborn from the dead, we who Scripture calls somehow miraculously His brothers and His sisters will also follow Him. So that as we faithfully witness to the truth of His power, we can take assurance and rest that He has been the firstborn and we are to follow Him. And as John says, He is the one who has freed us. The way that he says it is he's freed us from our sins by his blood. The New Testament sees the power of the grave interlocking in hands as allies with the power of sin. And so the one who is the firstborn from the dead, who has conquered the power of the grave, 
has, beloved, freed you from the power of the darkest and worst enemies that have imprisoned you. He is the one who has freed us from our sins. And John will say he is the ruler of kings on earth. You have to, under, you have to remember, it, it is, it, this is a live question for the people of the New Testament. This is not the people of the early church living in a comfortable democracy. You know, we're having in this year presidential elections changing or not changing who is in power and basically believing, you know, we'll be all right probably no matter what happens. This is not that world. This is a world that Rome rules with an iron fist. This is a world where Rome, the supreme imperial power who is excellent at killing, will absolutely kill any who oppose them. This is Rome who is hearing the early Christian proclamation that not Caesar, but Jesus is actually Lord, will take that counterclaim seriously and do their best to crush the church. And so when John is saying that Jesus is actually the real king, the true king, the ruler of all the kings, this is something that actually plagues the daily existence of all who read this. But it's not just a kingship where we are called to just trust him, just throw ourselves at his protection. This king is also a person who makes his people rulers in the kingdom as priests. He's he's saying that not only are you just safe and loved and cared for and delivered, but you, beloved of God, are called to the task of Jesus' rule. He is, in fact, the good, final, supreme ruler of all kings of the earth, but he makes us a kingdom of priests who mirror and mimic his own kind of rule, who turn from God to the world and communicate the truth of God's rule, who communicate the beauty of his character, who communicate the necessity of trust in him to come throw yourselves at the feet of this good king. We are the people who turn and rule under this king. John says that this is who Jesus is. And what we are called to, he does this thing in verse 7. In, I know I checked in the Pew Bibles. If you have a Pew Bible in front of you, you can see this a little better than maybe you see if your Bible's like mine. But in verse 7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. What John is doing here is he's combining two verses, two prophecies from the Old Testament. This language of behold, he's coming with the clouds. He's pulling from Daniel chapter 7. And then this language of this pierced one being revealed is from Zechariah 12. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has this vision of something that's going to happen where somebody, one who is like a son of man, will ascend into the clouds and be given divine authority to rule. 
And they will trample on these other beasts that Daniel sees. He sees four beasts in his vision, and somehow this one who's like a son of man will give, be given divine authority to rule and to reign. And he takes that verse and that idea from Daniel chapter 7. And then he points to this passage in Zechariah 12 where a faithful and good shepherd is presented to Israel and Israel rebels against them and kills him. And then in chapter 12, they mourn what they have done when the good shepherd is revealed. John, the, the writer who it's very likely is also the writer, it's understood to be the writer of the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John often functions as this, this mirror of themes that they actually fit together. The Gospel of John will repeatedly pick up Zechariah chapter 12 in the crucifixion and, and point to it, and at Jesus' crucifixion will say, this is the good shepherd who has been wounded and put on display before the people. And that's why in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is crucified, the people see Him and people mourn immediately and recognize what they've done, Joseph of Arimathea and other people. And here John is pulling these two passages from Daniel and from Zechariah, this somehow this good shepherd and this one who holds authority, and he combines these two ideas together, and yet they seem kind of out of place. They seem like misquotations. Because in Daniel chapter 7, if you go back and read it, it is the story of an ascension. It is the story of somebody coming up to the throne of God. But John's using it as if somebody's coming down. In Zechariah 12, he's already seen the one who has been displayed in his exaltation. It was Jesus on the cross. So why is he being revealed again? And being mourned in a different way. What seems to be happening is that John is inviting the people to see that they are in their life and in their sufferings. Being asked, invited, called to be like the, the crucified, wounded Good Shepherd who is returning from the clouds to be revealed in the glory of their sufferings to point to the ascended and crucified Good Shepherd. The people who are a kingdom of priests are called to represent this God and to take upon themselves in their own body their own sufferings, not for their own exaltation, but for the exaltation of Jesus. This is a repeated call in the book of Revelation that the sufferings of the people of God are not meaningless and they are not overlooked. But they are, in, in fact, intrinsic to the story. And they are not something that is a, a tragic mark, an awful turn, an unforeseen and unexpected outcome of the story. They're actually the surprising way through which Jesus exalts himself and demonstrates his own victory over sin and death. The book of Revelation, right from the outset, calls to us who are situated in a comfortable cultural context, do not be deceived. The summary of your life pursuit is not to be comfortable and safe and happy. That is not the ethos of the kingdom. 
The world will throw at us this constant need to fear. The way the kingdoms of this world work are through fear. One of the reasons that I I really felt like, okay, I just need to jump off the ledge and do this in 2020 is because it is an election season. And I would invite you as people who are participating in politics, wherever you are in the political spectrum, listen to the way that people will talk to you this year. It will be through the language of fear all year from the left or from the right. If you don't follow us, the other ones will burn the whole thing down. And you will be tempted to constantly be thinking according to the logic of fear, which is the way of the kingdoms of this world. And what you will be tempted to hear is, I must protect myself. I must pursue safety. I must pursue comfort at any cost. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ does not operate according to that logic. It is not the logic of the people of God. We can look at the world and see swirling, impending darkness and even seeming doom and say that even if suffering comes to me, such is a way that Jesus might be exalted and glorified. And this isn't the way to hit the escape button and rock it out of caring about what you're supposed to do this year at polling places or anything like that. This is not to say you're not supposed to be a responsible and caring and involved citizen. It's to say that you are not a citizen of this world. You are not owned by this place. Your initial and your end allegiance is to the king who will suffer no fools in his kingdom and whose reign is not in question. And even if his people might suffer and die, it is in their blood that he will proclaim his majesty and his promise will be, I will not let their suffering go overlooked. And it will not be forever. But it is in the crucified and wounded Good Shepherd that God invites all of human history to gaze on Him and to say, such is our King. We, the people of God, cannot see the crucified ruler over every king and pretend to think that our life, our destiny, is comfort and ease in this world. If the king himself is one who was exalted in his suffering, why would we deceive ourselves into thinking that we would live some other way? The promise of this passage is that Jesus is better than anyone or anything. He is, as it said again and again, the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He who was and is and is to come. And if you and I are to do what the words of this text tell us, the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it. If we are to be the ones who hear, we listen, and we keep the words. It is first and last, 
a vision of Jesus that will hold us. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. There is no kingdom that will come close to his kingdom. And he is the God who has brought upon himself all of our own sufferings, who has bowed himself into the prison that we ourselves have been imprisoned in and burst forth from the tomb, breaking the power of the tomb. There is no one like Jesus. We need what John is giving to us, passing along to us. We need to hear who this great first witness is and the thing that he is witnessing to. And if this morning you find yourself in confrontation with this vision of Jesus and you are realizing all of the little kingdoms that you have given yourself over to, today is the day to begin to set them apart, to throw them away, to set them down. I have to confess that I worship my own comfort. I worship my own safety. And I'm not just talking about, I don't want to die someday. I'm talking about every day of my life. Anybody who makes me uncomfortable is annoying to me. I live for this idol of comfort and safety. It is idolatry. It is false. And it will imprison me and kill me. Today I have to see Jesus and say, what am I thinking? That is a cheap God. And I don't know what your God is that you worship other than the God who is king above all kings. I don't know whether it's money. I don't know whether it is reputation. I don't know whether it is the identity that you put in your socioeconomic status, your class, or your race, your ethnicity, your language group. Whatever it is that you worship, that is a cheap and less than God. Jesus presents himself today as the one who is worthy of your worship in your whole life and even your suffering and your death because he is the God who loves us and frees us and turns us loose to work with him in his kingdom. He loves you. He has freed you. And he has invited you to center your whole identity on him who will never move. He will be unchanging and anchor for your soul and whose rule and reign will not be touched or overturned by any ballot or any ruler or any army. Come give yourself to him. Maybe for the first time this morning, maybe again for the millionth time. Come see Jesus and let him lavish this love, this freedom, this life with him on you again and again until the end of the age, the end for which he made you to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a word of comfort and correction to us. We are people who are tempted after good things that we make ultimate things. We are tempted to give ourselves over to them. 
And we confess it is, it is easy to just let this word pass by us because we live in comfort and ease compared to the people who heard it first. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be the people who hear this word and keep it to the end. Pray that we would have a fresh vision of Jesus that would be revealed to us in our hearts. The truth and the beauty of who you are would break over our minds, break our hearts. There is no one like you, Lord God, and we, we ask that you would help us to set aside all of our cheap, lesser gods. Let us not be enthralled by the lesser kings of this world or tossed about by fear and worry. But instead, we ask, God, that we would be gathered around your throne in security, knowing that your reign is ultimate and assured. We love you, Lord Jesus, and confess that we love you not nearly enough. We pray that you would stir up our hearts, that we would be overwhelmed by affection for you as we gaze at the God who loves us and frees us and makes us a kingdom of priests. We thank you, Lord God. Amen.